0: From Kirkco Media.
1: So, what you gonna do about it? So, here we are in a position where every anonymous nutball, hate group, terrorist, radical fringe on either side, or worse, politician can use shock jock outrageous methods to influence and mobilize huge audiences, promote violence, ruin people's lives. So last week, I asked renowned Yale Law professor, Jack Balkin, how we can get a handle on Facebook and Twitter, Google, YouTube, and what their responsibilities should be in a healthy society.
0: The social function of these new companies now is to organize and facilitate democratic discourse. Right now, because they are essentially surveillance companies, their data collection, data monetization, surveillance companies, their business incentives are badly aligned with that function. If we want to cure the problems of social media, we have to look past the current debates over cancel culture, deplatforming, reform of Section 230, and all of these other related questions. And we have to focus instead on the business models of these companies. How they're organized, their size, how they make money, how they do business. And if we can give them better incentives, they'll be able to play their appropriate role in the digital public sphere. That's the key challenge.
1: So, of course, we had to bring Jack back. Bring Jack back. Bring Jack back. We had to dig into his plan for adapting social media so it can be, well, a social benefit. So, stick around. You're listening to politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Once again, meet my co host, Jane Albrecht an international trade attorney who, for a decade, protected the First Amendment rights of the film industry internationally. And she's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar. She's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Welcome back, Jane. How you doing? Great, Bill. It's always a delight to be here. Jack Balkin. He's back with us again to dig into what is perhaps the most profound challenge of our time, the role of social media in society and even in politics. Jack is the Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale Law School. He also founded and directs the Yale Information Society Project. Hey, Jack, thanks so much for coming back. It's a pleasure. So, Jack, why are broadcast TV stations regulated by the government, the FCC? But just to promote the internet, a powerhouse like Facebook gets a free pass.
0: Well, it's because the model of regulation is very different. The way that it worked with broadcast media was that the government gave them a very valuable free public resource, that is, access to the spectrum. And in return, they took on public interest obligations. So that was the 20th century model for broadcast. What happened with the Internet was very different. In the 1990s, Congress revamped the Telecom Act and essentially deregulated large parts of telecom the idea then was that broadband companies would be mostly unregulated. They'd be information services as opposed to telecommunication services. And the way the internet was designed was that anyone could build an application on top of the basic structure of the telecommunication system, the broadband system. So people built lots of applications. One of those applications was social media. It got larger and larger and larger until now it's uh, swallowed large parts of the digital public sphere. So the model of regulation was always different. The social media companies we have today are the products of a strongly deregulatory environment that starts with the Clinton administration.
1: Was it important to the government back then that the internet grows? Why did it seem like they promoted that concept?
0: Well, they assumed, and this was bipartisan, by the way, both parties agreed, they assumed that the internet was going to be an amazing source of economic growth. Their focus was commercial The ideology of the time was we should just let people try lots of different things and experiment with lots of different things and see whether or not we can grow the economy. Of course, what happens when you have a deregulatory system like that is you get something like Facebook.
1: You end up with a mess.
0: Yeah, you end up with a mess, but you also end up with very, very large companies. And there was something else that they didn't quite understand in the 90s. We understand better today, which is simply this. It's the idea of network effects, that certain kinds of businesses, people will want to be part of them because other people are part of them. That's not true with all goods and services, but with respect to social media, you want to be on Facebook because all your friends are on Facebook. So the effect of network effects is to make these particular kinds of companies very, very powerful.
1: I want to talk about something you said actually last night while we were chatting and it pertains to this. You said that we've moved from a world in which publishers treated everyone as the audience to a world in which we are the content producers. That's right. That's a flip. The ramifications of that, of course, are tremendous. And
0: if you are worried about the quality of discourse online, it stems largely from that big change. So if you think about the kinds of things that people would get on radio or television, or even in their newspaper, or from a book publisher, a reputable book publisher, you'd see these things were already edited, they were already streamlined, there was already choices about what to cover and what not to cover. And so what you got was a very stylized version of public discourse.
1: Let's take a silly little rule that the FCC has with broadcast. They have a whole lot of rules, how many commercial minutes they can have, things they have to do with news, swear words. They're not allowed to swear on broadcast TV. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it that broadcast is so different, and why is it that we, like, no longer care about the health of society as long as it goes through a different pipe?
0: Your point about which pipe it goes through is very well taken. Many people think that, in fact, the 20th century system for broadcast regulation is outmoded, but... As you point out, one of the interesting consequences of that system of regulation was that it produced a form of public discourse that isn't as wild and crazy as the kind you often see online. That has both advantages and also disadvantages too.
1: Well, one of the disadvantages, of course, is who's got responsibility for the content that we see on social media. Talk a little about the Communications Decency Act, this Section 230 everybody's been hearing about.
0: That dates back also to the 1990s. The question was whether or not when new forms of internet companies, that bulletin boards in those days, were going to be going into business. And they allowed people to publish their own content, which is really the hallmark of the digital public sphere would they be held responsible for everything? Would they have to go in and edit everything? And if they did edit things, would they be held responsible for that? Those were the two big questions in the 90s. And Congress's response was the idea that, no, they'd be held harmless either way. They wouldn't be responsible for user-generated content put on a system. And if they chose to get rid of stuff like pornography or offensive material, they wouldn't be held responsible for that either. That was the idea in Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act. That had enormous consequences in terms of who could go into business, because basically it meant that relatively small startups could go into business. They didn't have to worry about being wiped out with a single lawsuit. But it also had effects in creating all sorts of bad actors who could make use of the new system.
1: The fact is these organizations give radicals on any side a great big megaphone and a real big soapbox. Helping ISIS recruit, for example... So, what is the thought behind responsibility for the result of these pipes creating this megaphone?
0: Facebook aligns itself with governments all over the world in taking down terrorist recruitment content. They're not required to do so by American law, although there are arguments about whether or not they might have an obligation.
1: But nevertheless, they do it. So, define terrorist in this case, because I seem to remember not too long ago there were a group that was gathering to kidnap a government official in Michigan. That doesn't seem too far from terrorism to me, neither to storming the Capitol.
2: The Capitol was even more interesting because that was an example of the internet and social media enabling smaller white extremist groups to come together and therefore become more of a force than they would have otherwise.
0: One of the effects of shifting from most people as audiences to most people as audiences and creators of content is that it greatly lowers the cost of organizing. All sorts of public-spirited organizations find it much easier to organize and find members, and all sorts of organizations that are not all that public-spirited can also find it much easier to organize and find members. That's one of the consequences of the democratization of speech that comes with the digital public sphere.
1: One of the things that was a big surprise for me was last week, You called Facebook, Google, and Twitter surveillance companies, basically in the personal data business. Yeah, that's what they are. How does that work and how does that guide their actions?
0: I mean, it's really funny. These companies offer services for free. They don't do it out of charity. They do it because they want personal data.
1: And what do they do with it?
0: Oh, well, they monetize the data in lots of ways. They use it, in other words, to hold huge auctions for advertisers. Facebook and Google say, we have the data. Who's on when, what they're interested in, where you might want to place your ad, when you might want to place it. All of that data helps them to basically create a huge auction system for digital advertisements. Another thing that they do Most people, I think, don't know this, is that Facebook is continuously performing what we might call social science experiments on its user base. Some of them are very simple, like, you know, what color do we have for this particular part of the website or not? But others are more interesting, like if we send the messages out in this order, how will people tend to respond to those messages? Will they stay on the site more often or not more often? If we do the messages this way rather than that way, what will their buying habits be? So they perform any number of experiments on the people who sign up for Facebook. And by the way, if they were a university, they would have to get permission from a human subjects committee, but they're not a university. They're a for-profit corporation. So they experiment lots. And so everybody who uses Facebook is a guinea pig.
2: There's a saying that if you're not paying for it, you're not the consumer, you're the product.
1: Yeah. So Jack, one of the things you said, half of Facebook puts out the fires that the other half of Facebook sets.
2: Yeah. Facebook's a really
0: interesting company. Facebook is kind of divided into two. There's one part of the company, and I met many of the people, they moderate content. They take down all sorts of terrible stuff and they set policy. And many of these people are you know, very well-meaning people. They're very public spirited. And then below them is an entire army, actually many armies who sit in rooms and have to make snap second decisions. You have three seconds to look at a piece of content. And it's just this enormous bureaucracy that's all devoted to content moderation and dealing with all of the problems yeah. and terrible things that happen online. And believe me, they are terrible. They would make your hair curl. What's left of your hair, Bill? Uh, and- <laughs> Thanks a bunch, Jeff. <laughs> uh, and many of the folks who work, they're contractors at Facebook. They have post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it's just awful for them. Oh my God. Terrible conditions. All right. So that's one side of the company. Okay. The other side of the company, is interested in garnering as much money as possible through advertising. And that means addicting people to the site and then getting stuff on the site that will draw the most attention. And as you said, Bill, it's the stuff that's the most outrageous and that preys on your emotions. So that side of Facebook starts fires. The other half of Facebook puts out fires. And that is no way to run a social media company. That's not what we
2: want. Is it unique to Facebook though? Or is it true of all the social media companies?
0: It's true of all social media companies that are advertiser-based, monetization of personal data-based, and that hire significant armies of folks to do content moderation. What makes Facebook so special is how large it is. It's the largest by far of all the social media companies, and its influence spans worldwide. And if it makes a mistake, not out of mouths, but just makes a bad error, it can have enormous ramifications around the world, and especially in countries where the governments really do nothing. Facebook is far more powerful, in effect, than many countries in the world. Absolutely. Jack, do you have kids? No, I don't.
1: I've got kids. And every once in a while, back when they were teenagers, they'd slip up a bit and you'd say to them, they get to select their punishment. And they'd get all weird on you and they'd say, oh, uh, I think I should be grounded until 6 p.m. tonight because I've got a date. (laughs) So here's an ad that ran this morning on The Daily. This podcast
0: is supported by Facebook. 25 years ago, phones weren't smart yet, and people still said fax it to me. The internet has changed a lot since 1996, but that's the last time comprehensive internet regulations were passed. That's why Facebook wants updated internet regulations to set clear guidelines for addressing today's toughest challenges, protecting privacy, enabling safe and easy data portability between platforms, and more. Learn more about why Facebook supports updated internet regulations at about.fb.com slash regulations.
1: There's our petulant child trying to pretend that they want what's good for the society where what they really want is to manage the oncoming wave of regulations that are coming their way. Do we feel like that's going to be the only way this kind of thing gets done is to get them to agree to something? Or is the government going to decide that there's some real regulations that have to be put in place?
0: Remember that Facebook is a global company, and so it is continually fighting a multi-front battle. Right now, it it may look as if regulation is coming in the United States, but the the folks at Facebook know that regulation is already here in the European Union. The European Union has been way out ahead of the curve in terms of protection of privacy with GDPR. I think what Facebook is asking is, will other countries around the world, because remember, they think globally. They don't think about the United States primarily. Will other countries start to do things like the GDPR? Will they start to bring antitrust lawsuits as the European Union is already doing? Will the United States do what Europe has done? Will it go that direction?
1: I wanna take a quick break, but when we come back, Jack, I wanna talk about your statement at the top of the show and talk about the regulating of business models and their economic incentives at social media companies. We'll be right back.
0: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on
1: the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting
0: platforms. Produced by Kurt Co Media.
1: We're back. Jack, let's break down your statement that we played at the top of the show. First, you said we need to regulate their business models so their economic incentives are better aligned with their appropriate social function. What did you mean by that?
0: What I mean is, instead of thinking about how they're going to make money, think about what you want social media companies to do.
1: But it's a private company.
0: But we regulate business all the time in order to promote social goods. We regulate businesses, for example, to prevent pollution and protect the environment. That's a social good. That's something we want to achieve. We regulate businesses to make sure they don't oppress workers. We regulate businesses to make sure that they treat consumers fairly. We do all sorts of forms of regulation of business. So there's nothing particularly weird about that claim. That's most of public policy. It does feel kind
1: of funny to tell a private industry that they are required to have a social function.
0: I understand protecting the public, but. I, I should just say the idea that. The media doesn't perform a social function in a democracy? The claim that that's true? That's a bizarre assertion. You may remember that the term press appears in the First Amendment, and the press is a private organization. The founders of our Constitution assumed... That media would play a social function. They thought it to be central to democracy. And there's a famous quote of Jefferson. Bill, I'm sure you know, which he says, "If it was a choice between having government and having newspapers, he'd rather have newspapers." Mm-hmm. That's because how important he thought the social function of newspapers were. By the way, newspapers in Jefferson's day were much more like social
1: media. <laughs> yes, they were. So let's dive it back into your statement, Jack. The, we need to regulate their business model so their economic incentives are better aligned with their appropriate social function. Yeah. Let's talk about how you would do that.
0: Well, so what is it we want from them? What we want from them is to organize and facilitate public conversation so that people can talk to each other. They can share ideas and opinions. That's good, that's a good thing. We also want them to curate public discourse, to get rid of threats, harassment, and to basically provide a relatively safe environment for a public conversation. That's what we want them to do. But it's also the case That it would be a good idea to have lots and lots and lots of different social media companies with different rules and different notions of what's appropriate and not appropriate so that people could make choices about where they want to engage in social media. So, what we want is a diversity of different media with different kinds of affordances, different kinds of features, and different kinds of rules, different kinds of moderation policies. And we want, in other words, a pluralism of social media companies.
1: Why do we want to give people a platform? Because the result is that you can give bad actors big platforms.
0: I just want to say that the idea that you don't want ordinary people to have a voice strikes me as profoundly elitist and anti-democratic.
1: It is, except one of the problems that I have, and I know Jane has, you have, Jane, is that you like facts you like to hear actual facts about a situation so you can make up your mind and have an opinion about how we should proceed as a society. I would agree. And the problem with having just anyone capable of saying anything on a platform, it's not necessarily facts. It might be garbage.
2: There's a difference between not giving people access to the platform, but having some governing principles so that, truth is given a chance. Who's truth? There's times where that may be great, but there's sometimes when, is there an ocean along the coast of Malibu? Yes, there's an ocean. You can't really debate too much about that. So it is important to have rules that, as Jack says, would limit or eliminate harassment threats and things like that. If
1: Jack has his way, everybody's going to have access to this platform.
2: I want to say, Bill, I don't understand
1: what your problem is with freedom of speech. My problem <laughs> is that you and Jane are hoping that freedom of speech results in real facts and no bad actors. And it's not realistic. What
0: what you're really worried about is the virality of the reach of content, which you think is harmful. Conspiracy theories, anti-vax uh, information.
1: Even just confusing, Jack. Yes, propaganda. When you talk to your friends and they're confused as to what the facts are about a situation, because yeah, it's very hard on, online to tell the difference between someone's opinion and uh, something that comes out of news sources.
0: So in a well-functioning a system, a digital public sphere, you would have lots of people participating and you would have lots of other institutions some of which would be social media companies, but others of which would be other institutions that are designed to weigh and assess the quality of information and to produce more information. Now, guess what? What are those institutions? They are journalistic institutions, universities, and scientific research institutions. There are all these institutions in a democracy that basically produce information and have criteria for deciding what's true or what's false and promote it and disseminate it. Now, you also need media because you also have to have a sphere in which people trade opinions and exchange ideas that is going to be governed by different rules than the rules of journalism, which are governed by prof- should be governed by professional norms, professional journalism, by science, which is governed by different norms, by education, which is governed by different norms. So when you think about the public sphere as a whole, what you have is a bunch of institutions, a bunch of media, and people participating. Now, what's happened in our world? I'll tell you. First, social media company have not played the appropriate role as the curators and the organizers of public discussion. Instead, they've gone for the quick buck. And uh, that has caused many of the problems, as we've discussed before.
1: That's the whole data and monetization process you talked about.
0: That's right. So that has undermined the kind of public discussion that would be helpful in a democracy. The very same system of monetization has undermined one of the key institutions for discovering truth and disseminating it, journalism. Journalism has been decimated, not only by social media, but by the basic structure of internet economies. And so that has deeply weakened the strength and health of the public sphere. Unscrupulous politicians have attacked most of the major institutions which are used to weigh what's true and false. They've attacked universities. They've attacked the educational system. They've attacked any kind of elite institution because it is elite, right? Anti-elitism has been a key word in our politics for the last at least 30 years and going back before. And that has had the effect of undermining a key component of a public sphere that works. The point is, An effective public sphere has lots of ingredients, not just one, and they all have to be functioning. And what has happened in the last 40 years is each of them has been significantly weakened and undermined. And the result is the mess we're living in today.
1: So, what's the functional regulation or change in policy that you'd like to see?
0: So, the first thing you have to go after is the central business model of social media. That means two things. First of all, you have to use competition policy to require breaking up of different functions of social media. So I would separate out the advertising networks and the advertising auction systems from the social media companies. They should not, in fact, have that kind of control. Wow. That's interesting. That is interesting. Second, I would try to say the size of these companies should be limited, so there are many of them. Third, I would prohibit mergers, anticipatory mergers of new technologies, which basically wipes out new competitors. I mean, one of the great geniuses of Facebook was that whenever they saw a new technology in a new company, they just bought it up. And they either incorporated it into Facebook or they let it lie fallow. And that basically wiped out a lot of potential competitors. I would enforce that. Then I would require a comprehensive digital privacy law in the United States, not necessarily the same as Europe's, one that's consistent with our constitution and our ways of doing things. And I think that Anyone who's in the business of collecting large amounts of personal data should be treated as a information fiduciary. That's a concept that I've popularized and developed over the years. You know what a fiduciary is, right? That's a person who acts on behalf of the interests of another, and is required to take that other's interest into account when they use information or money or property. So a trustee is a fiduciary, a lawyer who represents you as a fiduciary, right? And my view is that because these companies take all this data from us and use it in ways that could harm us or manipulate us, they have to take on fiduciary obligations.
1: Is harming us selling it to the
0: advertisers? Well, it depends on which advertisers. Some advertisers you sell to doesn't harm you at all. In fact, what you're doing is actually getting information to people that they might want. But there are other kinds of uses of sale of personal data or distribution of personal data or access to personal data, which in fact can lead you to be manipulated by third parties. You may have remembered the Cambridge Analytica scandal. That was a situation in which Facebook gave access to data to a third party, Cambridge Analytica, who used it to create psychographic profiles. And sought to manipulate people. Now, whether they actually were that good at what they said they were is not clear. They might in fact have just been selling snake oil in both directions. But the problem was that Facebook did not take care as to who it gave access to data to. And then that way they weren't acting like a fiduciary. They were not acting protecting the interests of the people whose data they collect and use.
1: Would you actually tell, uh, let's take Google, that you want them to stop the monetization of data of us personally and how they sell it to advertisers?
0: No, I don't want to stop all monetization of data. My view is that these companies, unless they're subscription companies, they're going to use advertising. So I'm not interested in having them no longer sell advertising or have advertising. What I'm interested in is what are the limits on the way in which they can monetize data?
2: These are all really interesting ideas. One question I have is if you were successful in being able to separate the advertising functions of a social media company from the social media company itself, how would the social media company without the advertising function make money?
1: Sounds like it would just charge the advertising side.
0: Imagine a guy named Don Draper. You ever heard of him? Sure. So Don Draper is a middleman. So on one side, you have media where the advertisements are run. And on the other hand, you have advertisers. They basically want to run in media. Now, Don Draper is a middleman. He's an advertising agency, and he's a broker between advertisers and where they're placed. Right. So that was the 20th century system. In the 21st century, Facebook is Draper, as well as the media in which advertisements are placed. So what I want to do is create a more differentiated economic system. I don't want to have a single ad broker. If you have a single ad broker, then the ad broker is going to be the most powerful institution in the world. What I want is I want a larger number of smaller companies. And that is the secret to basically creating a sound system. But that's not enough. You can't just have antitrust competition. You also have have to have privacy and consumer protection.
1: Then won't you just have some companies that choose the most outrageous concepts so that they actually gather radicals because that's what brings an audience?
0: Bill, in a world with many social media companies, there will be social media companies that uh, cater to every different ideology and belief system. The question is whether or not they have the same reach and power that Facebook does. And the answer is they won't.
1: We're going to take another quick break, Jack. When we come back, I think I'd like to go into the whole concept of free speech and whether these social media pipes are required to facilitate it. We'll be right back.
2: Welcome to Life Done Better, Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co Media, media for your mind.
1: We're back with Yale Law Professor Jack Balkin. Jack, you focused a lot of your career on the First Amendment. In one of our discussions, you said that we've moved from the First Amendment equaling free speech to now the First Amendment is only part of free speech. What do you mean by
0: that? Right. So when you speak on a publicly owned platform, Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, your relationship to the platform owner is different than your relationship to the government. The government is bound by the First Amendment. It may not infringe your First Amendment rights, your free speech rights. But you also have an interest in freedom of expression against the private platform owner, the owner of infrastructure as well. So that means when we think about free speech in the digital age, we're not only worried about our free speech rights against the government, we're also worried about our free speech interests and rights against private parties. Those won't be First Amendment rights. They will be concerns about freedom of expression, but they won't be enforceable through the First Amendment. And quite the contrary, the First Amendment rights are probably rest with the private companies in their decisions as to who they allow to speak on their platforms.
1: Jack, w- which is it? The government has allowed Facebook to be omnipotent and not responsible for content. So How at the same time does Mark Zuckerberg have the right to limit anyone's right to their own free speech?
0: When you say the government has allowed Facebook to be omnipotent, what you mean is they've adopted a series of economic policies, intellectual property policies and contract policies and telecommunications policies that have allowed such a large corporation to develop and exercise its power globally. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Well, that's orthogonal to the question of whether or not when Facebook operates a business, a media business in the United States, it has First Amendment rights. And the answer is it does.
1: We can't help but but talk about this 800-pound gorilla in the corner. Mr. Trump's right to social media that has been removed. So his right to free speech, by and large, has been eliminated by certain companies.
0: You mean his right to free speech on a particular platform has been eliminated? Correct.
1: By those companies.
0: All right. Very good. Now, I just want to point out to you two things. First of all, Trump lived on borrowed time throughout his entire presidency. He was in conspicuous violation of the policies of these social media companies throughout his presidency. He made threats. He engaged in propaganda. He advocated violence. He did everything, which, by the way, would get you kicked off of Facebook or Twitter if you were a private citizen. And he was delighted to keep doing it. And you know what? They made a special exemption from him because they made special exemptions for important, powerful public figures and heads of state. Because they made a ton of money on him. Well, that's the point. Their view was that what he said was important and newsworthy and people would want to hear it. And so they made an exemption from their rules. And guess what happened? What happened was January 6th. And once January 6th happened, they realized that it's not such a good idea to make exemptions for powerful people, because powerful people will use their power to do all sorts of terrible things if they're not hemmed in. And so in a sense, what Twitter did, I mean, Facebook is still deciding the question. What Twitter did is they said, you know, the the decision we did to give this guy a free pass and not hold him to the same rules we hold everybody else in the United States to was a mistake. And so we are basically booting them off the system. But you know what else is true about Trump? Trump can talk to anyone he wants. He can issue a statement. It'll be covered by the press. He can hold press conferences. He can get a blog. He can join any number of different other social media companies. The idea that the man does not have the ability to speak is absurd.
1: I'm reticent to try to defend Mr. Trump. However, it does seem like there's a double standard. The government has specifically protected these pipes, Google, Facebook, Twitter, from slander and libel suits. They've protected them with this Section 230. So here you have immunity, but at the same time, we're asking them to be somewhat responsible for the
2: content that they- But Bill, in talking about this, you have to understand this much. The conceptual issue when this all started was, are they a publisher like a book or a magazine publisher? Or are they more in the old technology, more like AT&T, where AT&T was not responsible for conversations you had with someone else while using their telephone lines? And at the time, they decided they were more like a platform. That was the underlying philosophy of why they were not held responsible. The question is, should we revisit it at this point?
0: To piggyback on Jane's comment, what they decided was that what they had was a new animal, which was a little like at and but was different in the sense that they also wanted, expected that these companies would engage in some kind of content moderation and that you can't actually run a social media company of any sort without having content moderation. So the reason why they created Intermediary Media in the first place was to say that the content moderation decisions would be, the, would be the call of the social media company. They would do the calls. And the reason is very simple. Imagine that the government had its own social media company. Imagine that the government decided that it was just going to create a version of Facebook. We'll call it Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is a social media company run by the American government. If they did that, it would soon be a cesspool. And the reason why is because everything that's protected on the First Amendment would, in fact, exist on that site, and there's nothing the government could do about it. So the idea of content moderation by these companies is something more than what is protected by the First Amendment. So, for example, pornography is protected by the First Amendment. And if Uncle Sam ran a social media site, there'd be a lot of pornography on it. There'd be lots of commercial speech on it and advertisement and spam on it. And there's not very much the government could do about it because the First Amendment protects it all. But the idea of having a social media company is that the social media company can curate it. It can have a rule saying, sorry, no nudity on our social media site.
1: We're just assuming that they're going to have our best interests at heart as they curate these things?
0: Well, this goes back to the original question we had before, Bill. I said that currently their economic incentives are skewed, so they don't have our interests at heart. What you have to do is create a business model in which they're more likely to act in the interest of the public. That requires antitrust law, competition law, privacy law, and consumer protection law. If you don't have those things, what you get are social media companies, especially the largest ones that create lots of fires. Jack
1: Balkin, thank you for returning with us today. No doubt you're going to get invited back. Hey, to the listeners who haven't heard our last show where we focused on Jack's book, The Cycles of Constitutional Time, start by going and buying the book at Amazon and then uh, come back and listen to that show. It's really pretty amazing. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. And Jane, thank you for joining us as well. Jack, I've got one thing for you to try on for size before we go. All right. In order to qualify for Section 230, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and YouTube have to change their policies so that all contributors must be actual people, identified as real people, trackable with clear attribution. This alone will eliminate 80% of the hate, hoax, slander, and crazy stuff on social media And the remaining 20% will be subject to libel suits and FBI investigations. What do you think?
0: It's actually orthogonal to the problem because much of the propaganda is produced by people who identify themselves. Facebook already has a real name policy, and that has not prevented Facebook from being the site of enormous amount of propaganda
1: okay well i'll keep thinking our executive producer for this episode of meet me in the middle is Stuart halpern show engineering and editing was by joey salvia and mixing and sweetening by steve rickyberg music for this meet me in the middle is composed by celeste and eric dick don't waste your time hunting around for our next episode hit that subscribe button will you we'll see you next week folks be okay.
0: from Kirkco media media for your mind